Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Ken Levine back for another episode of Hollywood and Levine. The topic this week, meetings. Now, nobody in Hollywood will arrange a meeting or go to a meeting. In Hollywood, you take a meeting. And so I thought I would talk a little bit about some of the movie meetings my partner David Isaacs and I have had over the years. And these are not in any kind of chronological order, but it just sort of gives you some idea of the insanity of Hollywood. And Hollywood is kind of crazy. And there's also some nice aspects of it too. Okay, so I'm going to start off with a meeting that David and I took. This was probably in the late 80s, and we took it with an executive at Disney. And he called us in and he said, look, we at Disney want to do sophisticated romantic comedies, kind of like the screwball comedies of His Girl Friday and Philadelphia Story and that sort of thing. And the way you guys write Cheers and Sam and Diane and that sophisticated banter, you're the guys that we want to write sophisticated comedies for Disney. And we said, okay, great. When we come up with an idea, we will bring it to you. And they said, fantastic, great. Oh, listen, while you're here, you know, we have an idea and I think you would be the perfect guys to write it. And the idea was Ernest goes to jail. Now, if you remember the Ernest series, they were all very rural comedies. Hey, Virgil, look what I'm going to do. Yeah, that's the sophisticated comedy that Disney wanted us to do. There was another executive at Disney who you would go to his office and he would pitch you like six or seven ideas for movies that supposedly they wanted to do. Supposedly Disney was really committed to these ideas. And the ideas were always terrible, just terrible. And you'd wind up passing and you'd always feel bad because you figure, okay, you know, you're going to walk out of this room, you're going to have a movie assignment, you're going to have money and you're going to have six months work. But the ideas were just so terrible. And then you would talk with other screenwriters and they would say, hey, did you go in for the Disney meeting? Huh? Did they pitch you the uh, Bette Midler lives on a house and a Russian submarine pulls up to her front door? I mean, just these absurd, terrible ideas that 
everybody in town passed on. And so we didn't really feel as bad. You know, you would go in sometime to these pitch meetings and oftentimes they would say, okay, we have this great idea that we're working on and we need a writer. You go, okay, great. Saves me the trouble of having to come up with the idea. Then you get in there and they go, Butler School. And you go, yeah, okay, what about it? Well, it's a school where they teach people how to be butlers. And you're going, and? And they go, that's it. That's all we have. Come up with something for us. And then we walk out of there and go, what do you do with butler school? What the hell does butler school mean? And so you just let it slide, as do 30 other uh, (laughs) screenwriters who are pitched butler school. And 99% of the time, you never see butler school make it to the silver screen. However, there was another time when David and I went for a meeting and the producer said, okay, here's what I want to do. Police Academy. And we said, okay, yeah, that's it. I want to do Police Academy. People who train to be policemen. And we gave our standard, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. We'll, we'll go home and give it some thought and see if we have some ideas on that. And we left the meeting, and an hour later, our agent calls and says, gee, what happened in that uh, meeting? We said, what do you mean? He says, well, they said you guys weren't enthusiastic enough. We said, enthusiastic enough about what? It's police academy. What, what is that even? Well, in the case of police academy, they did find somebody to uh, figure it out and do it. And they made a bunch of movies and a bunch of money. But had we come up with an idea for police academy, that would not have been the idea, nor would it have been the approach. Okay, here's one of the worst meetings that we ever had. And it was with a guy named Dylan Sellers at 20th Century Fox. And the meeting was at five o'clock. And David and I were working on Cheers or Frasier or something. We were at Paramount at the time. And so we left Hollywood to go to 20th Century Fox in Century City at about 4.15 so that we would get there on time. And we did. We arrived on time, and as we were getting out of the car, and I know this sounds like a sketch, but it's a true story. As I'm getting out of the car, the back of my pants rip. And I mean right up the ass crack. Well, it's five minutes to five. (laughs) Where am I going to go? It's not like I can run home or run to the Century City Mall and quickly buy pants. So... We walk into the office and and I am just hugging walls. And, (laughs) you know, I just kind of uh, shimmy my way across and, and sit in the couch. And when it's time to 
finally go into the office. Uh, we go into the office, and again, I am skirting along the wall until I can get to a chair so that nobody sees that my pants are ripped. I mean, right down the ass crack, the whole way. That was a very uncomfortable meeting, especially at the end when, you know, I got up and and who gets up and backpedals out of a room? Well, that's exactly what I did. Oh, I should say one note about a Disney meeting that we had, and I don't remember which one, but at the time, my son, Matt, was like maybe three years old. And I had mentioned during the course of the meeting that I had a son who was three years old. And later that day, a big stuffed Mickey Mouse was delivered to the house. And I gave it to my son, Matt, and I said, I was at a meeting today and I told them that I had a little boy and they said, here, you can have this Mickey Mouse. And Matt said, oh, that's really great. Thank you, Daddy. But the next time, could you go to a Donald Duck meeting? (laughs) Oh, my God, he's in his 30s. We took a meeting once with a director named Colin Higgins. And at the time, Colin Higgins was very hot. He had done a, a great movie called Harold and Maud. He had also done a very successful movie called Foul Play. Now he was looking for his next project. And at least he was honest because we walked in his office and he said, I want to spend four months in Hawaii. So just come up with a movie that's set in Hawaii. I don't care if it's a comedy. I don't care if it's a drama. I don't care if it's a farce. I don't care what it is. Just make it set in Hawaii. And uh, he never did make a Hawaiian movie. I guess he never found one. I think the one we pitched him didn't go over very well. There is a, a comedian from the 50s and 60s and 70s named Alan King. And Alan King got his start in the Catskills in the Borscht Belt but he became a wildly successful comedian. He was very funny. He was on the Ed Sullivan show a million times, and he had this like great bit. He's this Jewish guy. He came out in a suit, always had a big cigar, and he was really one of the first comedians to talk about life in the suburbs and you know what a hen-packed husband he was and that sort of thing. And he had a great delivery. He was very, very funny. Also a guy who was like very exasperated. Think of a much more Jewish Louis Black, I guess, and that was Alan King. And in the 70s, I'd say late 70s, early 80s, he also had kind of a film career and he had a production company. And David and I happened to be in New York and our agent said, okay, I've arranged a meeting at Alan King's company and you guys can just go up and, you know, meet their development person, that sort of thing. Usually when you went on these meetings, you never met the 
head of the studio or the person whose name the production company was named for. Uh, Usually it was some executive or what they used to call and probably still call D-girls, D as in development. And these were always very bright, attractive young women, and you would pitch your story ideas to them, and 95% of them would be gone in two years. I mean, I don't know what happened to these development girls, but generally one or two years and they disappeared. So uh, we go to Alan King's and we go up to his office there on Fifth Avenue and it's like six o'clock and the development person's uh, son had a fever or something like that and he couldn't take the meeting. And so Alan King down the hall said, okay, I'll do it. I'll take the meeting. So we go down and we meet with Alan King and it was one of the great hours of my life because Alan King wanted to do a movie about his days as a stand-up comic in the Borscht Belt, in the Catskills. And he had great stories that he was telling us and we was waving his cigar around and it was a, a, a performance for two people, (laughs) but it was just vintage Alan King. And we were enthralled and in stitches for over an hour. Ultimately, we decided not to do it because we just didn't know the world that well. And we didn't want to write a movie that was inauthentic and something that, that would disappoint him. We met on a rewrite. Remember a movie called Summer Lovers? with Peter Gallagher and I think Daryl Hannah. And it was these two lovers that they were set in uh, Greece, I believe. And the director was a gentleman by the name of Randall Kleiser. Now, Randall Kleiser had done The Blue Lagoon, and that became a big hit. And so he made a big deal with Columbia Pictures to develop his own movies. And we came in with an idea, which he liked, and then we developed it with him and wrote this movie. And the movie was a coming-of-age comedy, and ultimately, Columbia just wanted another Blue Lagoon. They didn't want a coming-of-age comedy. So they never went ahead and made the movie. So now he's going to go and make Summer Lovers, which basically is the Blue Lagoon. But he was getting nervous. He wanted a rewrite. He was going off like Friday degrees to film this movie, and this was now Monday. And he called us in the morning, and he loved our draft of our movie, loved it. And he called us and he said, I'm going to messenger over the script. I still think it needs some work and a little punching up and everything. Could you guys consider it and and meet with me later today at 4 o'clock? And we said, sure. And we read the script and we drove across town to the valley. And we met with Randall Kleiser and we told him all of our ideas for the movie. And he said, oh, okay, these are great. Fantastic. Okay, go to work. And so we then drive home over Laurel Canyon and we get home and my agent calls me and says, what happened in that meeting with Randall Kleiser? 
And I said, well, what do you mean? We pitched our ideas and he liked our ideas and we're off to do the rewrite. She said, he fired you. We said, what? I said, yeah, he, he fired you. <laughs> I was like, what happened over Laurel Canyon that, that got us fired? But, uh, but we did. And the movie got made, and um, I never saw it. Here's maybe the best movie meeting we ever had. There was a Queen Latifah movie out a few years ago, and I don't remember the name of it. My partner and I got a call to go down and meet with the producer. And the producer said, okay, the movie is in the can, but we put the trailer together and there's really no good jokes. And so we need one really good joke for the trailer. They said, we can go back and reshoot this scene or this scene or this scene or this scene. So take one of those four scenes and write one joke. And and that's your assignment. For which... They paid us stupid, crazy money. And we felt guilty. We we wrote them 10 jokes. I mean, you know, Jesus, for that kind of money. Um, and I guess they went back and refilmed one of the scenes and did one of the jokes. I don't know. Never saw the trailer. Never saw the movie. When you go in to pitch a movie, it's, well, it's much harder now. Now when you go in to pitch a movie, first of all, very few people actually get a chance to go in and pitch anymore. Uh, The industry has really shrunk. used to be that if you were a working screenwriter, you would make appointments to all of these studios and you'd go in and you pitch your movie. Uh, Now it's very tough and you have to come in really with the whole thing laid out, the treatment and and that sort of thing. And they'll ask you questions like, what do you see the poster? And what do you think the tagline would be? You know, it's like they're more interested in marketing than the actual idea of the movie. But at one time, we had done a movie for Columbia. Again, this was Columbia. And we had an idea for a movie that was loosely based on my experience going off announcing minor league baseball. This was 1988 when I went to Syracuse and uh, announced for the Syracuse Chiefs. And I kept a journal that year. And at the end of the year, I said to my agent, should I put this together for a book or what? And he says, no, no. He said, do it fictionally. Sell this as a movie. So I was like, no, oh, okay. So we go in and we meet with Columbia. And like I said, we had just turned in a draft that they were very happy with. So we were kind of the flavors of the month. So this was our pitch. Went in and I said, I want to do something loosely based on my life. A TV comedy writer becomes a minor league baseball announcer. I said, basically what we want to do is Bull Durham meets Good Morning Vietnam. And they said, sold. Just like that sold. And we went, great. And then we left and we went to the smokehouse in Burbank for lunch. And at one point during this celebratory lunch, I turned to my partner and the producer of the project and I said, um, what's the story? Like what actually happens 
here. And then six or seven drafts later, (laughs) we were still working on that damn story. And here's the thing about doing a movie and being in development hell, as they like to say. You're only as good as the current regime because when a new regime comes in, the first thing that the new studio president does is throw out all of the stuff that had been developed by the previous regime. So that's what happened to us. Somebody new came in to Columbia. I think it might have been Don Steele. I don't know. It was a revolving door back then. And so our thing got thrown on the trash heap. Okay, it happens. We still got paid for a number of drafts, and, you know, that's the way of the movie business. And then a few years later, we get a call from our agent, and there was a director named Tom Shadiak, and he had just done a big hit movie called Ace Ventura Pet Detective, the one that was pretty much the breakout movie for Jim Carrey. So he was the flavor of the month. And he was being offered screenplays all over town. And, you know, they would just give him piles of screenplays. Well, the one he wanted to do was play-by-play. So suddenly, play-by-play is back in play. And we spent the entire summer working with Tom. He would come to our office two, three days a week. And we worked out, finally... A great story, a great story. I mean, I'm I'm really proud of that story today. And David and I start writing the movie, and we're very excited because it really looks like this is a project that's going to go. And then Tom Shadyak gets a call. Oh, hey, a director dropped out, and uh, we need somebody to direct The Nutty Professor, and it starts next week. Can you do it? And he said, sure. And that was the end of our project. Never answered our calls again. It's like we completely disappeared out of his life. And although we got paid for another draft, once again, it was a a project that never got made. It used to be in the old days, back in the 80s and 90s, when David and I were much more in demand, that if we wanted to do a rewrite, then then we had the assignment. You know, they would send us the script and they would say, if you want to do this, the assignment is yours. That's how we got Mannequin. Uh, I might have mentioned this story before, but, uh, you know, we had done the Mary Tyler Moore pilot. We had a few weeks to kill. We called our agent and said, hey, uh, we're available. You know, called the Charles Brothers. We're happy to do a cheers. And he called back and said, uh, hey, how'd you like to make five times the money in the same amount of time? So we went and we met with the people from the uh, the picture, David Beagleman, who was the guy who, uh, who famously uh, was arrested when he was the president of Columbia for forging checks using the name Cliff Robertson, the actor. And, uh, you know, this was a shady guy. And... Um, you know, and the thing that was sort of awkward is that the two writers, they were two writers, one of which was also going to direct, were the two guys in the meeting. 
And they were the ones that were saying to us, look, just change anything you want. Just make it better. We don't care. Just make it better. And so we did. And, of course, Mannequin became a big hit. And uh, likewise with uh, Jewel of the Nile, which was the sequel to Romancing the Stone. They sent us the script. We said, yeah, this is fun. We'd like to do it. And they made us a deal even before we met with Michael Douglas. That was pretty great. One time we passed, though, on a movie... And it was, I think, called The Secret of My Success. It was a Michael J. Fox movie. And it was going to be made in New York. And they were going to start shooting on Tuesday. And they decided on Monday that the script needed work. And here's how they put it. And it's a great expression. Just once through the typewriter. Just once through the typewriter. Okay. And it would mean that we would have to go back to New York and be in New York for like five weeks during production of this movie. And we thought, well, okay, that might be, you know, kind of fun adventure to be in New York for five weeks. I think it was like May or June. It wasn't January. And we said, fine, send us a script. And they said, um, <clears throat> no, we, we don't want to send you the script. Just make your decision and either come or don't. And the fact that they wouldn't even show us the script said to us, we don't want to go anywhere near this project because we are going to spend five weeks in a hotel room or in a studio office rewriting 19 hours a day. So that's one where we were offered the job and we turned it down. Nowadays, it is much, much harder to get a rewrite assignment because the studios will go to like five or six different writers and the writers have to come back and pitch what they would do. It's a lot of pro bono work. I mean, you have to talk about how you would change the story and what you would change with the characters and you pretty much have to come up with like a 25-page treatment that you have to go in and sell. So there was a time when a producer came to me because of my baseball background and he said, we have this movie at Disney Touchstone and it's based on a real story about a bunch of uh, inner city youth in Los Angeles who form a cricket team and they get to be good and they eventually go over to London and they wind up involved in some tournaments kind of a you know bad news bears with cricket well i didn't know that much about cricket uh it's a confusing game if you're an american um but i learned i studied the rules and what we determined was that the story was a mess so i came up with a whole new story and again plotted it out first act second act all of the beats introducing new characters, talking about who they were, etc., etc. It was a comedy, but like I said, bad news bears kind of thing. So we go in and we pitch this whole thing to a uh, studio executive. It's like about a 45-minute pitch. When we get done, the executive says, well, where are the jokes? And I said, oh, don't worry about the jokes. The jokes will be there. Believe me, I'll find a lot of funny things and funny lines along the way. And he goes like, what? 
what are some of the funny lines? And I said, well, I, I write Cheers and Frasier. Uh, I'm very capable of coming up with funny lines. Don't worry about that. Now the story works. It's cohesive. You can track it. There's some funny moments. There's some block comedy scenes, you know. Uh-huh. Okay, let me think about it. I didn't get the job because I didn't come up with the jokes. Here's another great meeting that led to nowhere, but we really didn't care. Larry Gelbart, who, God love him, was the Mozart of, of comedy. I've talked about him many times. He wrote Tootsie. He wrote City of Angels. He wrote Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And he wrote a little show called MASH. So Larry was always very big in movies. He also did Oh God and Movie Movie. And people would offer him assignments. And he was very busy and oftentimes he would have to pass. And Many times they would say to him, well, do you have any recommendations of someone else we could go to? And God bless, Larry would always suggest us. So we were getting all of these assignments. And at one point, we got a call, and it was like, hi, this is Stanley Donan. Would you guys like to have lunch with me tomorrow? Like, holy fuck, Stanley Donan. And we did. And he had an idea for a movie, but the studio didn't go for it, and we definitely would have signed a board. But it was great being able to just have a lunch with Stanley Donan. I mean, that was Hollywood royalty. And then I will leave you with this one last movie meeting. And this was just a few years ago with Josh Whedon's company. And I had written a spec that had been very well received around town. In fact, eventually I sold it. And um, oftentimes, if you do that, you write a spec, even if they don't buy it, but they really like it. They want to meet you. They want you on their radar and that sort of thing. And so, you know, you take a lot of these meet and greet movie meetings. So this one was with Josh Whedon's company. And I go in and I meet the guy and the guy looks like he's 15 years old, maybe 16. And he looks at me, and immediately you can tell the look on his face is, who the fuck, who is this old guy? <laughs> and, I mean, it was just palpable, you know, the, the look on his face. So I sat down, and he was very cordial, and he said to me, um, what, what have you been doing? I, I have to ask you, because... This movie was very well written and with such a sure hand. Um, it, it's like an amazing first effort. What, what have you done before? Oh, God. And I had to say, um, no, this actually isn't my first effort. I've had produced movies and I did M.A.S.H. and Cheers and Frasier and The Simpsons, etc. And, of course, he was just mortified. And I was embarrassed having to 
say those things. And clearly the meeting was over after that. But as, as my parting piece of advice to studio executives, producers, and writers, before you go into a meeting these days, Google the other person. It will save you a lot of time and embarrassment. So that's just kind of a sample, a potpourri of what it was like uh, doing movies for us. And remember, movies were just kind of our side career. We were primarily television writers. So I'm sure if you talk to somebody who made his living exclusively doing screenplays, he's going to have a lot more stories. But they're all kind of wacky. So ends another podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Bruce and Jason Miller, Howard Hoffman and John Wolfert. You can write me at HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood.